Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SCADcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matt Nickley. Before I begin, I thank you for tuning in during these challenging times. I hope this podcast has brought you moments of peaceful introspection and positive messaging. Honest conversations bring about the discourse and convergence of ideas that can fuel change in our lives and our communities. During this time, I encourage you to continue to listen, really listen to one another. Our ears are as valuable as our voices, and our strength comes from empathy, kindness, and humanity. We stand with those seeking positive change for this country. Change that will see us all treated equally as Americans and as human beings. And now for today's special guest, Ruth E. Carter, designer of some of the most iconic costumes captured on film over the past four decades. Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Amistad, Lee Daniels the Butler, Black Panther, Dolomite is My Name, the list goes on with every passing year. Her enthusiasm for the art and fearless leadership makes her a favorite of Hollywood professionals and fans alike. She treats every character, whether they wear a cape or not, like a superhero, and brings the highest respect and care for the clothes that define them. Today's interview was recorded last fall when Paula Wallace sat with Carter for a special Meals on Wheels event in Atlanta, and we are proud to bring you this interview now. From SCADcast, this is On Creativity, a conversation between Paula Wallace and Ruth E. Carter. Can you share your favorite transformational looks from throughout your career? Well, I have worked with some pretty great actors like Samuel L. Jackson and, you know, I put a shower cap on his head on school days and he was called a local yokel. But I've also, you know, dressed him about four or five times, even Angela Bassett. You've dressed her in five times. I've dressed her five times and uh, how Stella got her groove back and Tina Turner's life story. My first time dressing her was uh, she played Betty Shabazz in Malcolm X. And so when you work with an actress or an actor that has that range, it's a joy to collaborate with them and come up with these interesting characters that they're going to portray. Several costumes often become uh, real-life fashion. For example, when Annie Hall came out in 1977, the Annie Hall look took off and hasn't really ever left. And then Kerry Washington's iconic white Burberry trench and scandal, which yeah. became instantly popular. Have you ever been surprised to see something from your own work appear in everyday fashion? Well, I think when everyone dressed to go see Black Panther, that was the <laughs> strongest uh, impact. And, and most people hadn't seen the whole film yet. They'd just seen the trailer. <laughs> so I didn't quite know how to take that at first. I thought, you know, a lot of people were dressing uh, in the fashion of coming to America to go see Black Panther. And I was like, no, this is not Zamunda, it's Wakanda. <laughs> so 
I, I, just, I, I just love that people connect to clothing. It's something we do every day of our lives. We dress uh, in our own personal character. And to have people want to transform into one of my characters is an honor. Yeah, yeah. Who have you seen uh, who's been like one of your most uh, iconic characters that you've dressed, would you say? Well, um, I think Malcolm X would be one. Um, Martin Luther King may be iconic. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just feel uh, mainly, I think, overall, uh, people learn from uh, the way that characters dress. You know, I was just speaking about Selma and the wearing of a trench coat and how when they were marching, a lot of times they put their hands inside the pockets of their trench coats. And most people don't walk like that with their hands in their coats, but it was a way to project a nonviolent image. And when now a trench, trench coat means so much more, you know, than just a, a garment. Mm -hmm. But it's how it's worn in it's the how film it's worn. that you have that you have to consider. Mm -hmm. um, so going back in time a little bit, let's imagine we're in 1988 and you finished your first film, School Days, and mm -hmm. it's a hit. Mm -hmm. So you immediately go on to work on some of the most memorable films of that era, like Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever. Mm -hmm. You were only in your 20s, mm -hmm. jetting back and forth between Atlanta, I mean uh, L.A. and uh, New York. Mm -hmm. um, so Tell us a few little Spike Lee anecdotes. You've done 14 films yes. with Spike Lee. We so, did school like, days here in Atlanta. Yeah. and Because mm -hmm. he went to Morehouse and I went to Hampton. It was, you know. And he reportedly called you up and said, uh, Ruth, this is the man of your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> and you said, Denzel Washington? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, we were all young filmmakers in the 80s, and um, I always had a dream to do this. Um, it didn't matter that it might have been for theater. I just wanted to do this so badly. I would read plays on my own and draw characters. Um, I come from an artistic family of artists, and so I'd look at my brother's paintings. He, he did the most beautiful ski scapes with the water crashing on the rocks and the seagulls flying away. And I'd look at those, and I'd, our whole family would say, you know, wow, did you see what Robert did? So we were all chopped liver, us uh, guys who were, my brother, other brother and I trying to draw. So, you know, it's something that kind of lived in me as an art form. And it wasn't until I got to Hampton that I saw a little theater. I saw a costume shop with no one in it. And I decided to change my major from special education to theater arts. And once I did that, the ball just went and rolled on. Um, I met Spike uh, very shortly after graduating from college. And he was telling me how to get into film, how to get experience with film. He said, sign up for a student thesis project. Get on a student project. They use the same equipment, film equipment, that the big studios use. And so I took his advice. And I signed up for a student thesis project. And before long, I was uh, working on a movie set on the weekends. And it was the first time I heard cut, quiet <laughs> on the set, we're rolling. <laughs> I didn't know what it meant, but I was, you know, hearing it for the first time. And then shortly after that, one morning, I get a call, and the voice says, Ruth. I say, yes, Ruth, 
Yes, <laughs> Ruth. I was like, uh-huh, this is uh, the man of your dreams. And I thought, Denzel? <laughs> I might have even said Billy D back then. And uh, he said, no, this is Spike. I want you to do my, uh, my, my, my first studio film which was school days. And because I'd gone to Hampton University, I knew the whole you know, student body. I knew the whole uh, sororities and pledging and all that. So it was a great first film to start out with. I've been very lucky. I haven't had to network much because every year Spike called me to do his film. 14, For, so 14 And there were 14, 14 of them. In between Spike Lee, I'd go back to Los Angeles, or that's where I actually lived, and I worked with Robert Townsend, I did the Five Heartbeats, I worked with Keenan Ivory Wayans, and I did I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, and I cut my teeth bouncing back and forth between the filmmakers. It was a great time. It was a time when we were uh, writing our, our stories, we were telling our stories, we were independent filmmakers, so we were like a tribe, we were like a troop. And every time there was a new deal on the table, uh, Spike would say, Ollie, Ollie, I'll come free. We're, uh, we're going to do it again. And that went on for 15 years. Um, I got a nomination for Malcolm X from that. I got a nomination from Amistad. And then people started to get to know me in the industry as a costume designer. And I'd branch out and, you know, there's things that, you know, people don't realize that I did. I did the pilot for Seinfeld. You know, I did uh, lots of things in between to learn the industry. And going from independent filmmakers like Spike Lee, who were, he was the head honcho, he was the leader of the pack, he was the CEO, then going into a studio environment and realizing that things were, decisions were made by committee. <laughs> and I wasn't used to that. So that kind of training uh, came later as I, as I got to, to know people and know the industry as, and, and the studio policies. Amazing. The first decade of your career is bookended by two of the greatest directors in history, Spike Lee and Steven Spielberg. And they were lucky to have you. Thank you. They're both strong-minded creators with clear visions for their stories. So, like, tell us how that works. Like, you read the script first, you meet with the director first. Like, how does this all evolve into the final productions that we see in the theaters? Well, um, that is how it works. You get a script, you meet with the director, the visionary. Uh, different from that, though, was meeting Ryan Coogler, who was another uh, strong visionary who directed Black Panther. And I was told I'm going to go in and interview for Black Panther. And, you know, I grew up with the Archies. I was reading Little Lotta. It was really not Black Panther. So I had to bone up on the superhero. And I called my brother, who's a police officer in Massachusetts. And I felt like all his friends lined their cars up and talked across the window. When my brother said, my sister's going to design Black Panther, they all wanted to tell me about the, the, the history of the Black Panther. And so I learned really fast. And my interview, you know, uh, was at Marvel Studios. And Marvel's a lot like the CIA. Uh, <laughs> You get nothing, you get no intel going in. So I um, basically had some comic strips to look at uh, and I amassed a Dropbox folder full of images. 
Uh, and because Marvel is such a secretive kind of, because they have to, uh, my Dropbox wouldn't open in the interview. So Ryan Coogler is in front of me, and a Marvel Studio exec is also in front of me, and I'm kind of going crazy inside because I can't show them the images that I collected. And uh, we just started to talk, and Ryan said, you know, I'm really honored that you're sitting here because I was a kid when I went to see Malcolm X with my dad and I sat on his lap and I remembered the costumes as a kid. And so I felt like I had auditioned for Black Panther when that little boy was on his dad's lap. So as you go along in that journey, you've made a connection to the filmmakers and you start sharing. You start sharing and the sharing of images starts to create the visual story. I mean, I love it. And, and you have to think about what's going to happen to the character even in the course of one day. Yes. Well, that's true. Um, you've got to think like they do. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to, with, um, with Malcolm X, I did a letter writing campaign to the Department of Corrections in Massachusetts because I knew he was incarcerated there. And I wanted to read his file. So after a while, I got permission. I, I'm from Springfield, Mass. So I drove up to Boston. And a lady sat me down in a cubicle. You know, this is 93, so bear in mind. We're in a cubicle. She sat a stack of files in front of me. And she said, the Xerox machine is down the hall, you know. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm about to read this man's life. And what I, what I found out about him was incredible. If you remember the film, he starts out as Detroit Red, and he's this hustler, and the colors are vibrant, the patterns are big. Then he goes to prison, and this is the part that I got to read. And I started to understand his transformation, how he was writing these letters to the commissioner, asking to be uh, transferred to other prisons that had bigger libraries or better libraries so he could educate himself and he could, you know, find this, um, find this place where, where he was lost before and find himself. So that, it was incredibly, um, gratifying for me. I felt like after I went through those files and Xeroxed so much of that information that I knew the man. So as he became this national speaker and then decided to make a hajj to Mecca and change and know that he's in, that the Muslim religion includes all people of all colors, that transformation had to be visual. So we went from bold, we, we wiped it out in prison with the denim, then he emerged as a national speaker in grays, and then I brought a, a light color palette back to him as he became El Haj Malik El Shabazz. Mm, what a story, what a color story, yeah. In an interview with Oprah Magazine, you said, uh, you've always considered yourself a person who feels called to depict the culture and journey of black Americans in the country accurately. That's mm. a calling. What African-American stories and heroes would you like to see uh, films made about? There's so many coming out. There's Harriet. I did Thurgood. Um, yeah. There's so many great stories. Um, recently, I've been looking at the Blackamoors, you know, the Moors, and, you know, the beautiful uh, kingly way that they dress, the opulence of that time. I'd love to do that, uh, that type of thing. 
What about Bessie Coleman, the African American? Yeah, Bessie Coleman. Pilot. I know that they they're doing Madam C. J. Walker. I mean, I feel like I could do Moulin Rouge. I mean, I <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk for a second about a film you've worked on, which I think everybody's heard of, Black Panther. Uh, there's a whole scene where Princess Shuri is explaining the Black Panther suit for T'Challa. Mm -hmm. What was it like to have? every detail of your design in such sharp focus mm -hmm. uh, in that movie? Well, there's always a subtext with what I do. You always have a story within a story. And with the Black Panther suit, um, there was a texture that I had to decide on what texture, this all over texture pattern would be on the suit. And I decided to do the triangle because the triangle is like the sacred geometry of Africa. It's the father, the mother, and the child. And what better way to present a texture but with a triangle on the suit. So I was really happy with uh, the way that that texture worked out and, and for it to be presented by Shuri, the you know, head of the Wakandan design group, was you know, kind of like she was the costume designer in Wakanda. Yeah, that's <laughs> perfect. You've designed so many costumes, as we've been talking about, at crucial periods in American history from the early 19th century to the civil rights era and much more. And you've won an Oscar for designing costumes for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's talk about that for a second. How about designing futuristic costumes? How is that similar to designing for the past? Costumes from the past. Yeah, well, you know, any kind of costume requires research about the people. Mm, tons you know, How of they live, socioeconomics, everything about the world that they lived in. And with Black Panther, we created the world. And there was a manual done that uh, talked about all the different tribes that made up of Wakanda. So I could go into the manual and say, I'm going to look at the Himba tribe. And I loved the way, the way that the Himba women, they wore this uh, red clay mixed with shea butter, and they put it all over their skin and in their hair. And it was just beauty. It's, it, some people think that it was, I had to read this, that it warded off mosquitoes, or it was some kind of antiseptic in the times of a drought. But it was, none of that was true. It's just they liked the way they looked with the red clay all over. <laughs> so I thought, this is great. You know, red is a very significant color. And so when we did the Dora Milaje, I decided to really up the red, really make the red really vibrant so that if you saw one Dora, it felt like more. It, because we only were able to make so many. A lot of it was done in post in visual vis effects. So uh, they tiled them and made them seem like a bigger army. But we really only made about 12 of them. <laughs> so it was important that they have this, uh, this presence. Uh, uh, each one had this presence. And color had a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. But you spent quite a few coins on a lot of those costumes. Yes, like the, <laughs> let's see, the panther suit was uh, the prototype, you know, the prototype. So when I did, maybe it wasn't a triangle at first, maybe I did, had a rectangle and maybe that didn't work. And so the prototype is, a, is about a half a million dollars. Um, and then everyone after that is about $250,000. So, but we weren't proven on, on Black Panther. We didn't, you know, the studios didn't know it was going to be a big success. I mean, we felt like it was, but the people signing the checks were like, oh, I'm going to be cautious. 
And you're only going to get six of those panther suits. That's all we can afford. But uh, a film like Avengers, Captain America, he's got about 20 of those uh, suits. And that's for second unit and photo opportunities uh, later because it's so involved. Making one of those suits is so intricately involved that you can't go back. You know, while you're in the process of making the suit and spending the money, um, they're thinking about, uh, you know, sending it to Japan, Disney Japan, and mm -hmm. having it on display in different places. When I first got Black Panther, I had the Captain America Civil War suit, the Panther suit from that film. And I, it, I was told it had a lot of problems. So I brought the suit uh, in to my office and I invited Chadwick Boseman in to try it on. That was one way of getting him in my office. <laughs> and... <laughs> and he put it on. And when he put it on, I was floored. Once he put the helmet on and he started stretching and moving, you know, because he wanted to show me how the suit moves, but I was floored. Uh, if there is some kind of a magical thing that happens with these super suits and these superhero films. I mean, look how many people love them. There is a, a majestic quality to them. And I experienced that when he put that suit on. And then he said, but I can't breathe out of my nose. <laughs> that's and a I problem. said, why? Yeah, that's a problem, right? <laughs> You're going to try to do some creates with some karate and you can't breathe out of your nose. And he said, this helmet was always made uh, wrong and it smashed my nose under here and I, I have to breathe out of my mouth. I was like, that, that won't work. And he said, and I can't lift my arm above here. Uh -oh. And I was like, how are you going to, you know, really work? So there were things that we had to do to improve that suit so that, you know, not only would it be transformative, but it would be functional. Um, but we weren't proven. So I only had six Panther suits. And he has a photo double, a stunt double. There's one for him. You have different shoes for the different Different costume. shoes go inside depending on who's wearing it. Um, so if it's his karate expert, he, has, he comes to me with a boot and says, I have to wear this shoe and I have to figure out how it goes inside the panther suit. So, and Chad liked a, a, an all-terrain um, shoe that was so bulky, you know, and I thought, oh, why? <laughs> <sighs> so we put that one in there, you know, and we get a little help from VisFX. They, they will shrink it down the thing with the helmet even. Um, how do you make up the panther head in proportion with the body? Because it's basically like wearing a helmet. Um, and in post, in VisFX, they shrink it down a lot. You know, but we had to design it and manufacture it so that it had a very low profile to the head. It was very tight to the head. Yeah, thank you for advising all of our students in VisFX and, and uh, screenwriting and production design, costume design. You've taught us so much at SCAD. And I love the concept of that design Bible that the production design team created because that was like a 500-page a book that gave all the details of a fictitious culture mm -hmm. 
And their history, mores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gave us a jumping off point. Mm -hmm. And I was really grateful that someone had thought this all through. You know, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to be on my own island creating my own world and then show up and it's a different world from everyone else. There has to be some consistency yeah. in Wakanda. <laughs> yeah. Um, typically, you um, as a designer are the one drawing the costumes before you make them, but in the Marvel Universe, uh, you are dealing with comic book characters that are already uh, known to the public and have a whole history of costumes. Um, that design Bible, the 500-page encyclopedia about uh, Wakanda, and just all that you incorporated in about cultural pride and female resilience, um, you have all these devoted fans, too, that you have to satisfy. I mean, how did all that impact each other? Well, I try not to think. I know I have a big responsibility, but I try not to, you know, satisfy, you know, every uh, story, every every whim. I try to stay focused. Um, I do have a team of illustrators. Marvel has a team of illustrators. Marvel's team of illustrators work on every single Marvel film that's done. So they get to a point where they're drawing for me and my team is drawing for me, and then they kind of drop off. And I'm like, where did they go? They went to Avengers. Oh, no. Come what? No. There are other films being made. <laughs> so I have to really use the team that I pulled together in my office. There's like five guys in a dark room. It just happened to be guys, but they're female illustrators, too. Um, they're in a dark room, and they are drawing all day. And so what I do is I do this research. I do these big mood boards. I get tripods. I put the tripods in front of their, their computers. I put post-its on different aspects of the costumes that I want them to combine and draw a fantastic costume for me. And usually they'll draw maybe 20 different versions, all in grayscale. And I'll look at the 20 versions. I'll decide what three or four that I like. We will develop those, and then we present it to Marvel. Mm. I love the story that you told at SCAD about the capes for the Border Tribe yes. warriors. Well, you know, the Border Tribe wore uh, blankets. They were Lesotho blankets from South Africa. Uh, Ryan Coogler, when he um, was given um, Black Panther as the director, he felt like he wasn't comfortable directing a film about Africa having never gone there. So he went to Africa and he spent some time with the Lesotho people in South Africa and he saw their beautiful blankets. And so when I came on, he asked me to get these blankets for the border tribe and he wanted me to lace them with vibranium. Uh, so they could, so you know what vibranium is, right? I could tell. Um, and so we printed beautiful vibranium symbols on one side of the blanket so they could use them as shields, you know, when they were fighting. Um, and so I imported, I don't know, maybe 150 blankets from South Africa. And, you know, they were heavy and they had these beautiful colors and beautiful prints all over. And we led up to uh, screening, screen printing them with the vibranium, silver vibranium on one side. And then Marvel saw them during our camera test and said, you can't use them. And I said, why? Uh, we're close to shooting. We're maybe, uh, you know, we're just at Christmas and we started shooting in, in January, early January. And they said they're too thick. They just don't drape like we'd like them to. They have they to flow. Yeah, they're like a swashbuckler with them. 
And so Christmas was canceled. I got with my crew. <laughs> And we said, what are we going to do about this? You know, and I called all the blanket manufacturers. There's a lot in North Carolina. And I said, can you do this pattern? I took a picture of the beautiful pattern. I sent it to the, you know, uh, the blanket people. And they said, sure, we can do that in six months. <laughs> and we didn't have six months. So one of my assistants, Caroline, she said, I'm going to get a shaver, you know, a man's razor. And she sent the PA out. He came back with a razor. She put the blanket on the table. And mm, <laughs> she shaved one down. Two hours later, we had a thinner blanket. But I said, we have 150 of these. <laughs> so my other assistant, Paul, he said, I've got an idea. I think there's two fibers here in this blanket, one synthetic. One is natural. The natural fiber will burn before the synthetic. I'm going to go outside and torch the blanket. I was like, take it outside. Take that outside. So he went outside, and 10 minutes later, he came back with a thin blanket that smelled horrible. <laughs> And we tried everything to get that smell out. We sprayed it with vodka, and <laughs> it just wouldn't come out. So we ended up shaving all of those all blankets, of and we showed them to Marvel, and they approved. So, so everything in Wakanda is not high-tech. No. <laughs> so the night of the Oscars. So what has happened to you? Did the changes happen overnight? So you're you know, getting screenplays laid on your door the next morning. Uh, but even before that, what did you wear? Um, I wore a dress that uh, I, you know, there were so many events leading up to the yeah. Oscar. In my house, you would have thought I was starring in a movie. <laughs> and everything was divided by uh, dates and events. And I was so busy, I had a friend, B. Michael, B. Michael America, design my dress for me. And we had a little snafu with the cape at the end. We, we, we chose the wrong color. It was very Disney princess. <laughs> and I said, Michael, no. <laughs> and on, on, uh, that, uh, on Saturday, before the Sunday of the Oscars, uh, we were at the fabric store picking a new fabric. <laughs> And I got in the limo on Sunday in my robe and drove to the costume house that was still sewing that cape. So, you know, I wasn't going to let anything steal my joy. I was still happy in the back of that limousine in my bathrobe. It didn't matter. <laughs> it didn't matter. No, and we've seen some, we see some gorgeous photographs. You look gorgeous that Thank night, as, as you do every day. Um, so Georgia is the place to film, and we're so glad that you're here making more movies. And I know you were work you've been working out uh, outside the airport, um, and you got two films coming up with uh, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, Dolomite, Dolomite is, is my, my name. name. Yeah, and then a film that all of us at SCAD are just freaking out about coming to America too. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, from Wakanda to Zamunda. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I never thought that I, I told everyone while I was making Black Panther, this is not coming to America. It's going to look different. And then here I am on coming to America. <laughs> and I'm telling everyone, this is not the Black Panther. 
So what can you tell us about these uh, costumes that we're going to be seeing in Dolomite and in Coming to America too? Well, I wanted to, in Dolomite, uh, I wanted everyone to experience the 70s the way that I knew it. I mean, I was born in the 60s, so I remember the 70s. I had the blue bell-bottom jeans. I had the afro. But I wanted it to be remembered in a good way because we like those clothes. <laughs> and I wanted... The, I wanted people to experience it in a really positive way and remember disco and all of the fun things that happened during the 70s. And so it, that's what you'll experience. It, I didn't want the costumes to be the butt of the joke. I wanted them to really uh, be reminiscent of what I remember seeing uh, myself and thinking it looked great, it looked cool, people were dressed well and looked, looked you know, nice. So. Mm -hmm because we know so much more now. So we still have our beautiful galas and our beautiful shapes and our men in tuxedos, but now we've upgraded it. And I know you've been approached by uh, fashion houses to and to design costumes for music videos and concert tours, and you're a marvelous painter. Uh, so what's cooking next for you? Well, I hope to come to SCAD and paint for a little bit in yes. next year <laughs> and because I love to paint and that's what I did as a kid and um, it's always something that I do in between to kind of you know decompress and feel like I'm still an artist in between jobs and um, I just love to do that I really do need to take a break <laughs> and that's what I'm gonna do mm -hmm. Well, let's thank Ruth once more for being here with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Ruth E. Carter. What are some of your favorite Carter-designed costumes? Think of just how often our wardrobes have been influenced directly by her and other costume designers' work for TV and film. This has been a truly unique second season for SCADcast and On Creativity, with a global ongoing pandemic and the quest for social justice in our own country. Stand for peace, stand for your neighbor, and stand together. Thank you for tuning in to SCADcast and On Creativity, executive produced by SCAD president and founder Paula Wallace, with original music by SCAD alumnus George Lovett. On behalf of the entire SCAD community, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay active. We'll see you next time.